According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 11 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 11, continuing our roller coaster through Isaiah and Jeremiah, covering one chapter per Sunday and uh, getting the big picture of what these prophets had to say, the impact that they had in their nation, the ministry they had to their kings and the, the population of Jerusalem. About 150 years apart between them and uh, Isaiah, obviously, um, we could say uh, his ministry succeeded and, and Jeremiah's failed. Can we say that? In response to Isaiah's message, a humble king such as Hezekiah um, responded and repented and was blessed. The nation was blessed and the nation survived. Under the ministry of Jeremiah, evil kings rebelled and hated and rejected and Jerusalem was destroyed, carried off into captivity. And the Jewish people began 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And so the distinction there being the response uh, on the part of the people, on the part of the king, and and so forth, in the uh, unfolding plan of God. And we cannot say that Isaiah succeeded and Jeremiah failed. They both were faithful to their ministries in their generation. And so having taught for 66 weeks in Isaiah and now 14 weeks or 11 weeks into Jeremiah, we had 52 total in this book, um... I uh, cannot stand and tell you what the outcome will be or what uh, will happen with the United States of America. Uh, I know whether it's an Isaiah circumstance or a Jeremiah circumstance, the believers of this flock will be equipped to keep our eyes on the Lord, to walk by faith, to trust in Him in any circumstance that He may call for a nation to endure. So I'm thankful for that. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah... The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice, and do according to all which I command you, so you shall be my people." and I will be your God. He brought them out of Egypt. He set before them a blessing and a curse. The blessing is not mentioned in this sermon, only the curse, because the day has come for God to show his faithfulness as he promised to do in cursing those that lived in defiance of his law. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are humble to receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your many blessings, day by day, moment by moment. We are humble, Father, to be in your presence. Who are we? And yet, Father, you have made known your thinking. You have revealed yourself. You have brought to our attention that which we need to glorify your Son, to live our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. Who are we, Father? I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the meat of doctrine that is to be contained in this chapter. 
and uh, pray that we might cover what you would have covered in this uh, short hour that's set before us. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I've broken this chapter down into four chunks, and each one of which could be a Sunday all on its own, each one of which could be a month all on its own, Uh, but we'll handle it best as we can. In the first five verses, we have blessing and cursing uh, as they were presented in Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law presented blessing and cursing. Here, it's all cursing. If I have the right slideshow here, I do. All right. Mosaic Law presented blessing and cursing, but mostly cursing that gets emphasized here in this chapter because it was conditional mosaic law was conditioned if you do this i will bless you if you do that i will curse you and conditioned as it was given the fact that it was human sinners that it was made with you might expect that these human sinners are not going to do well with a conditional covenant and praise god that most of the covenants he gives are not conditional that they are unconditional the covenant with abraham the covenant with david the new covenant for all eternity these are unconditional covenants the basis upon which you and i are saved is unconditional. It is grounded in the eternal satisfaction of our Father with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You and I are saved because of what God has done, not based upon any conditions that you and I can keep. We could not earn our salvation. We cannot unearn or or throw away our salvation. And uh, we can rejoice greatly in the unconditional covenants that our Father is very fond of making. The I will language that our Father communicates based upon His own goodness, not ours. Mosaic law, on the other hand, (laughs) that's a different animal. And on the day in which uh, Israel was brought out of Egypt, he brought them through the Red Sea, he brought them to Sinai, and he gave them the law, and he laid before them the if-you-do's and the if-you-do's, all right? And the if-you-do's on the one hand are pretty good, and with a blessing attached. And if-the-do's on the other hand are awful, with cursing attached. And this is the nature of the, of the conditional Mosaic law. It is a standard of human relative righteousness, a standard of perfection that no one can measure up to. And so the end result, of course, is going to be condemnation, obsolete, uh, making it obsolete and replacing it with Christ, as Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And we can certainly understand that as New Testament believers. Judah is about to experience the faithfulness of the Lord through his promised cursing. And I want to stress that this morning. I want to stress that in our own divine discipline as we go through it. All right? We don't receive cursing in the church age, but we do receive divine discipline. He does discipline us. He chastises us as a father does his son. And so we want to understand if he's blessing us or if he's, he's blessing us either way, but, but through the goodness or through the chastisement, it is a blessing to observe the manifest faithfulness of God. God is faithful to discipline. He would be faithless if he didn't discipline. And that's uh, an important promise there as well. The faithfulness of our Lord. Sometimes when I talk about answered prayer, I like to uh, stress it as a component of God's faithfulness. And I say, I will join you in that prayer. And together, you and I will observe how God chooses to show his faithfulness. All right, And he may choose to show his faithfulness through giving us what we're asking for, or he may choose to show his faithfulness through not giving us what we're asking for and giving us what we need and giving us what we had too little faith to ask for or giving us what his son deserves instead of what we deserve. Or 
taking someone home, a loved one home, when we're praying to save them from the cancer or heal them from the disease or save their life. And the Father says, why would I do that? This is their promotion. This is their eternal glorification. I'm not going to prolong the time of their misery. I'm going to bring them home to glory. And so God, when He answers prayer, manifests His faithfulness. And in this, He points out to them, He says, your... um, parents, your forefathers, and every generation in between, up to and including now you guys, the living generation is the worst one of all. You guys have failed in this conditional covenant. So uh, cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, starting with the Exodus generation and continuing to Jeremiah's audience. It's interesting, when you go back to the Old Testament, when you go back to Exodus, you find out Israel accepted these conditional terms. They were very bold about it. In Exodus 19.8, they were very, very bold about it. Moses came down, he spelled it out for them on the mountain, and they said, yep, we'll do that. And uh, I just, I I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I read uh, Exodus 19 and verse 8. It says... uh, Uh, in verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So out of their own mouths, it's like an entire nation full of the apostle Peter, you know, the apostle Peter saying, I'll never deny you. And uh, Jesus, you know know what he said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Well, imagine an entire nation of the Apostle Peter, and they're hearing the Mosaic law, they're receiving this conditional covenant. And and, and what I want to know is, was there not one man to stand up and say, no, thank you? Was there not one man to stand up and say, Lord, pardon me, I have a question, (laughs) all right? Because 430 years ago, Lord, you gave us the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional, eternal Abrahamic covenant that you have to keep and we don't have to and we couldn't. And and Lord, this Mosaic covenant, 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant, seems very conditional and impossible and, and we'd rather not because we're stiff-necked and we can't and, and we'll, we're good. We'll, just, you, we'll pass on this and we'll stay with the, with the Abrahamic covenant, you know? I wonder, was there any, you know, anybody, Caleb, Joshua, Moses, anybody, Aaron, anybody with a doctrine, the capacity to look at this conditional covenant and go, eh, no, let's stick with the Abrahamic covenant we were under two generations ago or four generations ago in, uh, in that. Well, out of their own mouth, they uh, accepted it. They then rehearsed it. You can read in Deuteronomy 27, they rehearsed it. They got up on a couple of mountains. Uh, Six of the tribes stood on Mount Gerizim and six of the tribes stood on uh, Mount Ebal. And uh, you can imagine, I mean, I hope that's on video. I want to see that someday. Just the acoustics in that valley in between and, and everything else as they recite the blessings on the one mountain, the cursings on the other mountain. And, uh, Anyway, Deuteronomy 27, I'm not going to, I can get lost, spend a whole hour just in this chapter, verses uh, 11 through 26, but just uh, notice in the first few verses here, maybe 11 through 13 or so, or 14, 
Uh, Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice. And so the Levites get to give the Amen. And uh, they get to start pronouncing these things. And so as you work your way through the rest of the chapter, you'll notice uh, the verses all begin with, Curse it is, and the verses all end with, Amen. Right? And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And that's why, you know, I like to wrap up our prayer meeting with that. And all of God's children said, Amen. And we have the, the corporate identity here. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 11, the only Amen that's happening is Jeremiah himself. Jeremiah himself will give the Amen message because the Lord is preaching, curse it is, and the people don't want any part of it. The people um, are rejecting what Jeremiah has to say. Uh, in uh, in today's class. So Jeremiah gives the amen. All right? And so through accepting the conditional terms, through rehearsing the blessing and cursing, through entering into the land on this covenant basis, on this covenant of works basis, Israel seals their Old Testament fate. And uh, by virtue of the fact, of course, according to Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, the law is useless. It was designed useless. All right. Some things have a designed obsolescence, meaning that eventually down the road they will be obsolete. I believe Mosaic law was obsolete the day it was given. That the design obsolescence was from its inception. That from the get-go it was designed to not be the permanent eternal operation that you and I have today in grace. All right. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Uh, the law was a tutor. The law was a tutor to lead Israel to Christ in uh, the aspects there. Let me bring up Romans 8 for you here. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. We taught a series in Romans a while back. I recommend it. It's sitting there under completed studies on the website. Minding its own completed studies business. Romans chapter 8. See, I changed that up a little bit there. Last week, by the way, I was a guest speaker at Corpus Christi Bible Church. And um, I realized... Pretty early in the hour, I had two hours there, but I realized very early in the first hour that none of these people had heard any of my jokes or my stories or any of my illustrations or any of my, I had complete freedom for two hours to (laughs) just talk about MP3 business and all kinds of things. All right, Romans 8 (coughs) and verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. (coughs) Biggest problem with the law is you had all those sinners. And uh, the flesh just kept getting provoked. The law would say, thou shalt not covet. And the flesh would go, ooh, let's let's covet. (coughs) So what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's why the true humanity of Jesus Christ is vital. He identified with us. He operated in humanity. The angel of the Lord couldn't have done this. The Holy Spirit couldn't have done this. God the Father couldn't have done this. But the God-man, Jesus Christ, God the Son, came in the flesh, true humanity, and He kept the law so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a blessing we have in the church age to walk in Christ, to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, so that we don't become a bunch of law keepers. We become 
law fulfillers. The requirements of the law are fulfilled in us as we are in Christ. What a blessing. And then this aspect of cursing. We don't have to fear this curse any longer because Jesus Christ became a curse. He became a curse to redeem us from the curse. And for this, I would point you to our Galatians series, which is not in the completed studies portion of the website. It is an ongoing series, which means getting up early on Sunday, which means being here first hour, which means coming on Wednesday night. The Galatians series is highlighting this, that Jesus Christ became a curse. Galatians chapter 3. And what what a delight this is to consider He became a man to redeem mankind. He became a curse to free us from the curse. He became sin to pay for our sins. Everything that He became in the will of the Father delivered us in uh, in such a powerful way. Galatians 3.10 As many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. All things. You've got to do it all. If you break one point, you've broken the whole law. You have to keep every single point perfectly, 100%, all day, every day, your entire life. That's 613 commandments, all day, every day. And if you break one, one time, you have violated the law. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law that is not of faith, on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so thankfully, Jesus Christ became the curse that he can then become the blessing in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. See, if he doesn't become the curse, he can't become the blessing. That's so vital to understand. Anyway, there's more on that in the... the, uh, Galatians series. The Exodus generation. As we move past verse 5 and we get to verses 6 and following. Now let's look at verse 6, 7, and 8. Verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. Back to Jeremiah 11. Are you with me? All right. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not do it. All right, so beginning with the Exodus generation, and every generation to this day, they have not obeyed or inclined their ear. The Exodus generation is repeatedly utilized as a warning to future generations. The Exodus generation, that's why I think it's marvelous that so many movies are made, that you've got the, the Ten Commandments, and you've got Cecil B. DeMille's, uh, you know, the charlton heston version and i guess there's some modern versions i don't pay attention to those but um I, I like the fact that the exodus is so portrayed the bible uses the exodus as such a theological picture it speaks of our redemption it speaks of bondage and then freedom and freedom in a way that only god can do man cannot part the red sea man cannot save us from the bondage to sin right and so coming through the red sea is a one-way exit from bondage 
The waters came crashing down. Nobody went back to Egypt ever. The Exodus generation pictures our eternal security. When you get saved, when you are redeemed out of the, the slave market of sin and you become a believer in Jesus Christ, it's like the Red Sea comes crashing down behind you and no one goes back. There is no loss of salvation ever and uh, the aspects of it there. And so we have the Exodus generation utilized as a warning repeatedly. Every generation gets this warning. Moses used the Exodus generation when he warned their children what we call the wilderness generation. That's the children of the Exodus generation. Everybody that was under 20 when they walked through the Red Sea, or or maybe not even born yet, when they walked through the Red Sea. All right? If they were 20 or under, or not present at the Red Sea, uh, we call that the wilderness generation. They would then live the 40 years in the wilderness. They would enter into into the land of Canaan. So we have the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, and then the conquest generation in uh, in that well when you go to deuteronomy 1 you see moses giving a warning and he says today if you will hear my voice do not harden your hearts say or words to that effect that then get used by david when he writes psalm 95 now david is 400 years later david's in in a basically a thousand bc he's writing the psalms he's warning his generation and what's he saying He uses the Exodus generation as his pattern, as his paradigm. And the the reason for that is clear. In the Exodus, God was redeeming a chosen people from bondage. So they are a picture. It is typology for any believer of any generation of any age. If you are a chosen person redeemed from bondage, in other words, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the Exodus generation stands as your warning. Don't fall in the wilderness. Don't be saved by grace through faith and then provoke the Lord to anger by not living the Word of God. See, they didn't go back to Egypt, but they didn't enter into the land of rest either. They did not enter the land flowing with milk and honey. And I think too many believers today are like the Exodus generation. They're saved, don't get me wrong. Not one of them was still back in Egypt. They were all redeemed, but they failed to enter into the rest. And I think that's the majority of Christendom today. They're not entering into rest. They're not abiding in Christ. They're not living in the Word of God. They haven't studied the book of Hebrews. All right. So David uses this in Psalm 95. Jeremiah uses this in Jeremiah chapter 11. I could probably find examples of of other prophets as well. I'm pretty sure Isaiah used it in his book. Stephen used it. Here's the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. And what's he preaching about? The Exodus generation. He gives a whole walkthrough of Old Testament history. And he says, you guys are the most stiff-necked of any of them. (laughs) And so they killed him. All right. It was his first sermon and his last sermon. The first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7. The Apostle Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And that, by the way, is a powerful chapter for our application. As it speaks of the living water, it speaks of Christ. And uh, being baptized into union with Christ, whereas they were baptized in the union with Moses, even as Christ was present with them. And then, of course, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4, these examples. So Hebrews is quoting David, who's quoting Moses, okay? So right now, Pastor Bob is quoting the author of Hebrews, who's quoting David, who's quoting Moses, and with Jeremiah mixed in there too, all right? That the Exodus generation is the illustration, It is the perfect illustration 
repeatedly used as a warning that says, you are redeemed, you ought to walk in a manner uh, uh, consistent with that. Also, you are accountable for what has been given in the Scriptures. When He redeemed them out of Egypt, did He just cut them loose and say, have a nice life, do whatever you want to do? No. He gave them the law. He gave them a standard of the Word of God under which to live. Likewise, you and I, we get saved, and God just, does He say, okay, glad you're saved, go live however you want to live? Or does He give us written instruction? We have a Bible. We have a canon of Scripture. Hebrew Scriptures, Greek Scriptures. It should be very clear how we now shall live. We are saved by the living Word. We ought to be living by the written Word. All right? That ought to be clear. As I think it's uh, Jeremiah is preaching it pretty loudly here in verses 6 through 8. We are accountable for what has been put in the Scriptures. If you don't know these verses by heart, I just threw those on the slide off the top of my head. Because they are regular features of my personal conviction. Regular uh, features of my thinking. Believe it or not, um, I, I base my life on what the Bible says. All right? And that's how everything works. Everything. Not just my religious life. Everything. Family life. Political life. Legal life right? Is the reason why I don't go kill people because the Texas penal code says don't go kill people? Or because the Bible says thou shalt not murder? All right. We are accountable for what has been put in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 29, 29, Gary Williams' favorite verse back in the day. The secret things of the Lord belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. There's plenty that he's kept unrevealed, that he's kept in his own secret places. But if he's revealed it, if he's put it in the Scriptures, then I'm accountable and my children. I I need to train that next generation. They are accountable for what's been put in Scriptures. Likewise, Acts 17.11, the noble-mindedness of the Bereans. They searched the Scriptures to see if these things are so. The Apostle Paul came to town. He taught them doctrine. And they didn't just... Swallow it because, hey, it's the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Obviously, he's right. Okay, no. They were noble-minded. They searched the Scriptures and see if these things are so. And Paul wasn't insulted, not at all. He was pleased. He was impressed. He complimented them. He told them that they were noble-minded. Likewise, when you're here learning the Word of God on a Sunday morning, don't just swallow it because Pastor Bob said so and he's the smartest guy in the room and whatever he says obviously has to be true. Search the Scriptures. See if these things are so. All right? Besides, Warren's the smartest guy in the room. But search the Scriptures. See if these things are so. That's noble-minded. Romans 15, 4. These uh, scriptures were written. Why are the scriptures written? You know, did God have to give us a Bible? He didn't have to. I mean, if he wanted to, he could have done all kinds of things. He could have, he could have planted a burning bush in our backyard. Every one of us at home could have had our own little personal burning bush. We could have just, you know, gone out back. and No, he gave us the scriptures. He gave us the once and for all delivered unto the saints scriptures. And we can appreciate this. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That is our disciplined instruction. So that through perseverance, 
man, how long does that take? Right? Um, that, the thing about the scriptures is you just can't get it in one day. You just can't get it in, in one session. You're going to spend the rest of your earthly life reading this thing again and again and again and again and again. Digging it out, getting the details. Through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So stick with it. Stick with it. What does the scripture say? Stick with it. Finally, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable, right? For teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We are accountable for the word of God. The Exodus generation uh, was accountable and they failed Each generation since then has fallen short. Jeremiah's generation is the pinnacle. And they've had so many examples. They even had the northern kingdom of Israel swept away by the Assyrians. They're doubly accountable, triply accountable, and so forth. Vital, I think, that we understand this. All right, back to Jeremiah 11, verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A conspiracy. And this is a fun one. I like this one. Um, Only because we live in interesting days and there are lots of conspiracies out there. Okay, And there are some that are just so... Uh, unbelievably wild and radical and whatever that, I mean, it just blows your mind. You think that is just so off the charts, impossible. I wonder if it's true, you know, and you want to just start looking into these things and it's, it's become a subculture and anymore. But here's the thing. A conspiracy only works if you can keep people ignorant that aren't supposed to know. All right. Uh, if 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 everybody knows and nobody's ignorant, well, then it's not a conspiracy. All right. Also, a conspiracy doesn't work with the omniscient God of the universe. Okay, because He always knows, and He knew before there was a universe. He knew in the mind of God before uh, at the Alpha moment and prior to the Alpha moment. He knew when He set forth the plan of the ages, every sin, every rebellious thought. And he permitted it. He permitted all of it. He's going to keep permitting it. He permitted the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He's going to permit the global rebellion against the throne of Jesus Christ. You know, we've spent thousands of years waiting for Jesus Christ to be seated on the throne of David. You and I have. The world certainly isn't. They're in no hurry to get to the Davidic throne being seated by David. But We've spent now thousands of years thinking, you know, thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We can't wait for the day that Jesus is seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem, right? That to us is a positive thing. The world will be conspiring to get rid of it on day one. They will be underhandedly, you read Psalm 2 sometime, they're going to be in a conspiracy to dethrone Jesus and to release Satan out of the abyss. That's going to be their objective. And they're going to spend a thousand years trying to make it happen. And they're going to work together. The Gentile nations are going to work together. They're going to cooperate. So we have some interesting aspects here. Let's look at 9 through 17. There's a conspiracy. 
Verse 10, they have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Now, the house of Israel has already been swept away. They're already under their dispersion. And their judgment came swifter. Their their judgment came sooner. Their uh, apostasy was blatant... um, just transparent rebellion, see, is, uh, Judah's was worse because Judah cloaked it. Judah covered it up. Judah practiced all the same idolatry, but they put it under a cloak of their religiosity as stewards of the temple in Jerusalem. They provoked the Lord by trying to serve both to try to serve the Baals while still keeping the daily sacrifices going to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel in Jerusalem. Verse 11, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape, though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. When he pronounces disaster, there's no prayer of repentance is going to change God's mind. He's not listening to their prayers. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And that's interesting. You know, there were more than just Judah, the tribe of Judah. The, the inhabitants of Jerusalem included a positive volition remnant of all the tribes that were fleeing the idolatry of the north that had fled to the south, that escaped the captivity of, of, um, of the Assyrians. And now they're fixing to be swallowed in the captivity of the Babylonians. Verse 12, the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they surely will not save them in the time of their disaster. Remember last week how useless idols are? You make it and it sits there. It doesn't hear you. It doesn't say anything. It can't rescue you. It can't even move. If you want to move it from the living room to the dining room, you've got to move it from the living room to the dining room because the idol can't move itself. It can't move itself and it can't solve your problems. Your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to the uh, shameful things, altars to burn incense to Baal. And it's, uh, it's quite an indictment here that we have to the house of Israel and the house of Judah and the contrast between the two. I find uh, interesting here as well. Your gods are as many as your cities. There is such a, a, a tongue-in-cheek insult there uh, on, on the one hand, it seems like it's uh, polytheism, right? I mean, it's just multiple gods. You've got a, you know, all kinds of gods, gods everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's a god. In which case, if everybody's a god, nobody's a god, right? Everywhere you look, there's a god here, a god there, everywhere, a god, god. And there's just, there's just you know, it, it's the one true god of the universe is mocking them in that statement. But then, on the other hand, the, the insult comes... Because the number of their cities is dwindling. They have less and less and less cities as the, the judgment keeps coming. I mean, the northern ten tribes are completely gone, and the, and the final two tribes are piece by piece by piece being taken away. They have fewer cities. And so it's, it's like, a, like a tongue-in-cheek insult here where Yahweh is saying, uh, you're running out of gods, right? You're running out of cities. You're running out of gods, and uh, and so forth. 
I think it's uh, it's interesting to study this in, in terms of conspiracy and how good it is or how good it's not. Mosaic law, defiance of Mosaic law was expressed by means of a conspiracy. In Jeremiah's generation, Yahweh calls it a conspiracy. And uh, when, when, the, when the bubble is popped, <laughs> you know, you're keeping a secret, you're keeping a secret, and then somebody comes up to you and says, hey, can you keep a secret? And you're a little, well, what do you mean? You know, and then they whisper it to you, and you realize that's not such a secret anymore, is it? I mean, that's, that's the secret I was keeping. You know, who knows this thing anyway, right? <laughs> so when Yahweh says, I am announcing to you a conspiracy, he's unmasking it. He's unfolding it. He's, he's demonstrating how useless it is and how swiftly the judgment is coming. And so the contrast between open defiance and this feigned obedience. Write this down. Feigned obedience. If you feign something, it means you're faking it, right? Feigned obedience. Another word for feigned obedience is disobedience, right? You, but, but you actually have the temerity, the audacity to attempt to pull one over on God, right? Just how stupid do you think he is? He is way ahead of you. He, he, is, he saw this coming. You can fool a spouse. You can fool a pastor. You can fool a human being. You're not fooling God. And so you can present yourself as this, uh, you know, Bible-thumping, Jesus-loving churchgoer. God knows. All right? God knows what's real and what's an act. If you're trying to impress somebody you're dating or if you're trying to impress somebody you want to marry you or whatever... God knows. Of course, open defiance is judged. And 150 years prior to uh, Jerusalem's destruction, the northern kingdom was swept away. The northern kingdom never even tried. You know, from, from Jeroboam, right from day one, the northern kingdom was birthed with two golden calves. You know, it's like Jeroboam looked back to Aaron and the golden calf of, of Exodus and said, okay, Aaron, I'll double you. Right? I'll see your golden calf and I'll raise you a second golden calf. And he, and he puts up two golden calves and they become Baal worshippers on day one of the northern kingdom. They never even tried. And it was, it was a horrible feature in the eyes of the northern kingdom that too many Jews from the north were getting all religious and going down to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh Elohim. And the northern idolatry was having trouble with that. See? So open defiance, obviously, that's judged. But feigned obedience. This is also likewise condemned. And I would stress these passages here for feigned obedience. And I would encourage you, if you ever want to do some interesting studies, um, take a look at these and think of them in view of the coming millennium of, of Jesus Christ. Many of them are historical as they apply to David, but they are also a, typo, a typology and they point ahead to Jesus in the millennium. So Psalm 18.44 with a feigned obedience. This is Davidic, Psalm 18. And he had victory. I mean, David, man, he, Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. David was practically uh, unstoppable on the battlefield. I mean, you know, if, he went, if David was going to war, the other side was about to lose. Um, that's just how David was. And uh, the, the armies that he led... 
So uh, in Psalm 18, let's see, verse 43, You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as the head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners, and here's our word, foreigners, you might say submit to me, or you might have a footnote there that says that they deceive me. Uh, it, the verb is to deceive. It, it's give a feigned obedience. To give a feigned obedience. And this is like a passive-aggressive, uh, not really obeying, obeying. All right? This is like a, 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 a child that sort of obeys or puts on a show like they're obeying. But in their heart, they're not. And they're doing the bare minimum. And they're going to get out of it if they can. Because they don't want to do what their parents are telling them to do. Right? Or uh, some of the redefinitions of uh, submission in uh, our generation. As they've redefined uh, hupotasso for the postmodern feminist evangelicals. And so wives under the redefined submission can feign obedience. Boy, there's a whole Sunday's worth of preaching right there. Feigned obedience. And David, see, David was a prophet. He knew it. He knew that they're bringing their tribute, but they're just gritting their teeth and waiting for David to die so that they can rebel again. Okay, And many do in Solomon's lifetime. Many do in Rehoboam's lifetime. More and more and more start fading away uh, after the death of David. Now, we look at this historically, but we also understand prophetically is this only David talking historically, or is this the, Jesus, the son of David, the greater son of David in a millennial context? Because he's going to conquer at Armageddon. He's going to conquer at Second Advent. And he is going to bring Gentiles under bondage, and, and they will bring tribute. And to start with, for the thousand years, they're all going to be believers. But as the years go by, you'll have more and more unbelievers. And as years go by, you're going to have more and more carnal believers who are going through the motions. They're submitting at the day of, at the Feast of Tabernacles because they have to, but they're not going to want to. And so when the final rebellion comes, the numbers demanding Satan's release are like the sand on the seashore. And the Gentiles are going to be sick and tired of Jesus Christ on the throne. Can you imagine? I mean, I can, sure. I mean, we have a president and we're ready for a new one after four years and we're really ready for a new one after eight years or we're really ready for whatever, right? We're so fickle. Can you imagine having a king for 1,000 years? Imagine that. That's, that boggles the mind. Anyway, that's Psalm 18. We've got Psalm 66 next. Maybe I need to change my illustration. We have a... When I was in Uganda, Steve Arnold and I went to Uganda and um, they have a president they've had since the 1970s, I think. Um, he's the same guy. He keeps getting elected over and over and over again. Um, and they love him. In fact, our driver, a great Christian kid that was driving us, he's the only president this, this driver's ever known. His whole life he's been president of Uganda. And basically his, his campaign, his, his reason for being president is that he's not Idi Amin. <laughs> okay. And since he's not Idi Amin, he's popular. And, and they, they love him. They, they view him as the savior, the, the, the person who's not Idi Amin. And they keep, every hotel you go to, everywhere, his picture's up on the wall. It's just amazing. Um, and so it's a pretty easy political contest. You just 
put your picture up there and say, I'm not eating mean, and they vote for him. <laughs> so I guess there's a country that doesn't mind the same president for 40 years, right? Or maybe England doesn't mind the same queen for, what, 200 years now? She's been queen forever, right? <laughs> queen Elizabeth, she's been there. Charles is never going to be king, but um, I'm getting off track here. Jesus, Jesus will be on his throne for 1,000 years, and the Gentiles are going to be gnashing their teeth. They want him gone. And we see glimpses of it prophetically in the Psalms, and then we see it spelled out in the prophets and in the New Testament. Psalm 66.3 Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. But some of them won't mean it. Okay? Some of them will not mean it. But all the earth will worship you and sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Come, see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the Son of Man. Come and see. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Come and see. He rules by his might forever, verse 7. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. See, the millennium is not peachy. It's not all hunky-dory. There is rebellion seething for a thousand years. That's why the millennium can't be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to bless Jesus for a thousand generations of those who love him, not simply a thousand years of teeth-gnashing, feigned, uh, obedient uh, people, phonies, that we see there. That's Psalm 66.3. Psalm 81.15 likewise addresses this. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him. It's the same verb in all these verses. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him, and the time of punishment would be forever. He puts up with it only so long and then it's done. Heaven and earth flee away from his presence and the great white throne judgment will then convene and all rebellion will be cast into the lake of fire. And so those Psalms should not be surprising given that Moses actually included this in Deuteronomy. Moses included this in the law as Moses was getting ready to die in Deuteronomy 33.29. He mentioned this. Moses had seen the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation. He's watching the, the uh, conquest generation getting ready to follow Joshua and, and uh, step across the Jordan River. And he says, um, 33.29, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is a shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe. That word cringe, that's our verb. That's our verb to lie, to deceive, to give feigned obedience. Your enemies will give feigned obedience before you, and you will tread upon their high places. And all the principles there. Feigned obedience is likewise condemned. Human conspiracies are worthless as God laughs from heaven. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I mention it many times. I think of it daily. God is in heaven and he's laughing. And, you know, I should pay attention to this more frequently. 
I should adopt this as my attitude instead of watching the, the news and, and getting all worked up. You know? Watching the news and seeing some transgender um, pervert get appointed to a government office to become a leader of the faith-based advisory council to the president as some, you know, mentally ill, deranged um, deviant, okay? But deviancy has been redefined. And now the only deviancy is the, the only perversion is the, is the judgmentalism of the Bible thumpers telling them that, telling sin that sin is sin and so forth. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The Gentile nations are going to hate being under the Jewish bondage of the Davidic throne in the millennial kingdom. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. They're they're chafing under their king, and he says, no, that's my king. I put my king there, and they're rebelling against him. They've devised a vain thing. When you turn to uh, Zechariah 14, you learn that their conspiracy involved water because um, those who failed to go to Jerusalem would have their water turned off. And so other nations would agree to uh, provide water for them, that they would do the feigned obedience. They would go to Jerusalem. They would do what needed to be done to keep their water turned on. And they would take care of those nations that had their water turned off. Different aspects on that. Then the last part of the chapter. The fun part. The part where the audience says, okay, preacher, you're done. You either stop saying what you're saying or we're going to kill you. All right. Another conspiracy. Well, in between comes some warnings. God tells Jeremiah again, don't pray for this people. Don't lift up a cry of prayer for them. It's the second time he's had to tell him not to quit praying for the Jews. Why does he keep telling Jeremiah to quit praying? Quit praying, quit praying. I think it's because Jeremiah kept disobeying and praying anyway. You know, but I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. How oh, there's so much doctrine in verses 15 and 16. There's the olive tree and the blessings there. Well, Verse 17, the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. All right. Moreover, the Lord made it known to me and I knew it. Then you showed me their deeds. And so uh, the Lord lets Jeremiah in on the conspiracy and tips him off to it. And then he tells him about another conspiracy. He says, guess what? There's uh, plots against you. There's uh, not only do they hate the Lord, and they're defying a Mosaic law, they hate Jeremiah. And they want Jeremiah to stop preaching. Uh, when you look down to verses 18 through 23, we see, we see this here. Verse 21, thus, uh, the Lord, uh, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth. Remember who they were? That's Jeremiah's hometown. He was born in Anathoth. 
the, the men of Anathoth are Levites that aren't allowed to be Levites. They are under the, the discipline of Eli and they can't serve in the temple. Jeremiah is of those priests that can't serve as a priest. His own kinsmen, his own tribe, his own clan, the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord so that you will not die at our hand. You quit preaching Yahweh or we're going to kill you. Say, and I know in previous years, Ralph Braun was under a death threat in Brookings, Oregon, and, and uh, Colonel Thiem was under a death threat for a time in Houston. And to my knowledge, I've never been under a death threat, but who knows if those days are coming. All right. All I've had is the ridiculous little brochures in the parking lot, the, the Beware Pastor Bob pamphlets that you found under your windshield wipers that day. All right. But these men of Anathoth quit prophesying in the name of the Lord, so you will not die at our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I'm about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters will die by famine. And a remnant will not be left to them. For I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. All right. Until that year comes, there can be a remnant. Until that year comes, there can be repentance. But now that this year has arrived, it's the year of their punishment, and there is no escape. But Jeremiah becomes a type of Christ in this as his brethren plot against him. He becomes a type of Christ in such a remarkable way, hated by his brethren, rejected in terms of his message, the attempt to put him to death. So many of these things become uh, uh, prototypical of, of Jesus in his earthly ministry, in his earthly life. Notice uh, the language of a lamb to the slaughter he talks about here. If I back up to... Uh, Verse 19. So he learns about the conspiracy, the national conspiracy against Yahweh, the personal conspiracy against Jeremiah. And the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it. Then you showed me their deeds. But it, I was like a gentle lamb led to slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised plots against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. And so here's this language, the lamb that's led to the slaughter. And what a, what a privilege Jeremiah has to be an imitator of Jesus Christ in that regard. Oh, but, O Lord of hosts, and look what he does. He leaves himself in the hands of God. O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you have I committed my cause did Jeremiah take matters in his own hands and go inflict vengeance himself? No. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Jeremiah calls upon the Lord to do what he said he would do. He said, Lord, you're the God of vengeance. You repay. You repay them, but you do so as you see fit, not as I tell you to do. <laughs> okay? I think all too often we... we we try to couch our, our vengeance motivation in, in religious language. And so we, we tell God to, to inflict his vengeance. And then we tell him who, what, where, when, why, and how, and all the details. And, and the timetable was likely now. And uh, things like that, right? And we dislike the fact that he's so patient. And that he's delaying. And that he's so long-suffering. And Lord, if you wait too much longer, that person might repent. And then they'll get saved. And then you can't blast them because their sins will be forgiven. That would just, you know, we have this Jonah attitude, right? You're all mad because Nineveh repented. All right. So Jeremiah becomes this type of Christ. And this is only the first. We're going to see him 
used and abused and misused and, and, and thrown down pits and wells and everything. This is just the, uh, we're still early in the book. He could save his life by not preaching. Instead, he entrusted himself to the Lord. And I think that's a pattern. We better learn that pattern. What happens when the day comes and we're told to stop preaching? When we're told, well, you can keep preaching, but there are certain topics that are hate speech, and if you go there, we'll shut you down. If you go there, then you're not a preacher, you're now a hater, and you're going to go to prison. You can have certain parts of your Bible, but if you preach these other parts, it's not tolerated. You can believe what you want to believe, but you can't preach it. When's that day coming? We're getting close. It's already happening in Canada and some other places. Okay? So he could save his life by not preaching. Well, do you love your soul more than... What did Jesus say about laying down your life and if you love me more than these? And if you love your life or hate your life in comparison? Okay, there's a lesson there. Jeremiah had great victory here. In fact, the typology was so striking that in Jesus' own day, they, some of them thought maybe he was Jeremiah that had come back. Matthew 16, 14. Jesus said, who do the people think I am? And they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Why would they think he was Jeremiah returned? Because Jeremiah was such a type of Christ. Hated, rebelled, attempted murder, all these things. Such a type of Christ. To me, that's high praise for Jeremiah. If the people think Jesus is Jeremiah returned, that says a lot about Jeremiah and his character in his day and age. Indeed, the man of sorrows was quite like the weeping prophet. And you can find the passages, the imagery as it relates to this man of sorrows. The... uh, Language of Isaiah 53. I wanted to save myself more time for this slide, and I didn't quite get there, but that's all right. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. You know, we have no idea what Jesus even looked like. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not one gospel tells us if he had brown hair, red hair, blonde, tall, short, fat, thin. We've got nothing. Big nose, floppy ears. We have no clue. Whatever. No physical description of Jesus Christ other than he had hands and feet and they were pierced, all right? And whatever he looked like, he was not uh, handsome. No stately form or majesty or appearance that we should be attracted to him. So he wasn't just a kind of a Hollywood movie star where the women looked at him and went, okay, wasn't a whoever, Brad Pitt kind of guy or whatever. All right. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One like, uh, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Boy, that's, that's, that's the weeping prophet right there, isn't it? That's, uh, that's Jeremiah multiplied. 
And uh, that's the nature of his earthly ministry. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the knowledge of the Son, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The sorrow is what equipped him to go to the cross. Without this sorrow, he's not equipped to be our substitute. Without this sorrow, the Father won't be satisfied with the Son's volitional sacrifice. There's more weeping in Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 22, written by David a thousand years ahead of time, but the very words of Jesus on the cross. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. They taunt the very grace provision for Jesus to endure. Jeremiah, they wanted Jeremiah dead. Jeremiah entrusted himself to the Lord. They want Jesus dead. Jesus entrusts himself to the Lord. He's hanging on a cross and these mockers are saying, oh, entrust yourself to the Lord. If he loves you, he'll get you down from there. And he stayed there. He didn't come down. Hebrews 5, 7. Maybe some of these aren't, maybe aren't as well known as others, but I like them. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Able to, but choosing not to. Is it possible to let this cup pass by me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He prayed to the one able to save him from death, and he prayed to the one who insisted that he go through with it. He was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Without the suffering, without Gethsemane, there is no Golgotha. Finally, 1 Peter 2.23 See what I did there? I avoided all the crucifixion passages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I just gave you Psalm 22, Hebrews 5, and 1 Peter 2. The divine commentary on the night in which he was betrayed and the day in which he purchased our redemption. 1 Peter 2, 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So there he is, the shepherd and guardian of our souls. All right, so Jeremiah becomes a type of Christ. We'll have more. We'll see more death threats leveled against him, more attempts made to, uh, to kill him and stop what he's doing. But this, uh, this is our first glimpse at it here in chapter 11. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this truth. 
I pray, Father, that we would uh, pay attention and study and learn from these blessings you've provided for us. Equip us, Father, through your truth that we might live out what we are accountable to live out for the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I do pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know your Son, that has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, if they're sitting here today without eternal life and they've been wondering about it, I pray that today is the day that they trust in Christ, that they believe right here, right now. They don't need to walk an aisle. They don't need to get baptized. They don't need to stand and confess anything right here, right now, sitting right where they are, with their heads bowed and their eyes closed, listening to my voice. Father, they can understand that they are sinners, that they are headed to the lake of fire. But Jesus Christ went to the cross to accept judgment for their sins. I pray that this might be the day that they trust in Christ, they believe in Jesus Christ so as to be saved. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.